morning if you're watching online as well. Um, some people are away today, so they've caught up. I'd love you to have open in front of you Acts chapter 17. And there's an outline also in your, um, uh, in your bulletin. Have that open in front of you. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you as, you open, as we open it up now, we can uh, know you more. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you hear us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, is God really there? Does he exist? Uh, I'm not quite sure there's any more important question us humans have to grapple with in life. Is there? Does God exist? Is he really there? C.S. Lewis, a famous um, author, once said that God is not the sort of thing that you can be moderately interested in. God's not the sort of thing you can be moderately interested in. Your answer about God can't be, eh, eh, maybe, eh, sort of, I'll take it or leave it, really. Can't do that with God. As you know, I've, um, I, we have a number of pets in our household. Uh, you've, you've probably met Neo, our, our cat. Here's our two cats. I do like this photo. Um, I like it for lots of reasons um, on the right there. Uh, I love the look at Winter, our other cat. There's Winter on the, on the left. Neo just looks like he wants to make friends. So Neo's our ginger cat who comes into church at any moment now. Um, he may come in. In fact, I'm pretty sure you've locked him, out, locked him in. Okay, Archie, so Neo is on the loose again. So hopefully he won't come in like he did last two weeks ago. But I love the picture of Winter there. Winter's saying, just please put me out of my misery. Like, you know, this is just, this is degrading. This is, um, do I have to put up with this? Anyway, and there's Teddy on the left as well. I do, I, um, uh, you know, I do love my pets. And, um, and as I was saying, Neo, he loves church. Uh, it doesn't seem fair to turn him away from church, uh, especially as I believe pets are saved by works and not by grace. Um, <laughs> that's what I tell them anyway. <laughs> Teddy, you're saved by works. You know this. This is not going to help. Um, just kidding. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think I'd be lying if I said that I'm, just, uh, I'm not just moderately interested in my pets. I love my pets. They're great. I love them. I'm not just moderately interested in them. My two cats and my dog. Chickens. Actually, the chickens. Yeah. Hmm. It's fair to say I'm not moderately interested in... Well, actually, it's fair to say I am moderately interested in my chickens. Proof of that is that each night, well, I leave the chicken pen door open. The foxes could come in. I could go out into the cold at night and close the door. I could do that but I'm only moderately interested in them. You know, I don't really care that much. Sorry, chickens. Oh, well. You know, you can judge me all you like. I know some of you are doing that right now. How can you do that? Well, I just do. Um, <laughs> you, you can't be moderately interested in God. You can't. You can't be moderately interested in God. After all, if God does not exist, there's no reason to be interested in God at all. So if God doesn't exist, you might as well not have any interest, you see? On the other hand, as C.S. Lewis goes on to explain, if God does exist, 
then this is of paramount interest and our ultimate concern ought to be how to be properly related to uh, this being on whom we depend on moment by moment for our very existence. Uh, so people who shrug their shoulders and say, well, is God really there? What difference does it make? Merely shows that they probably really haven't thought deeply about the question, about this problem. Even atheist philosophers who have thought very seriously about this problem admit that the existence of God makes an enormous difference. Well, today we catch up with Paul in Athens. He's on his second missionary journey and here Paul not only argues for the existence of God, but he also argues that we can know this God and that it matters more than anything that we know this God through his Son. So, first point in your outline there, I've just called prelude. It sort of sets the scene to Paul's speech in Athens. We, we uh, well, Paul had just left Berea. So, I'll just show you a map, uh, at least this one. Berea is, um, it's pretty small. So, there's Berea, there's Thessalonica, so Greece, and there's uh, Athens down there. In fact, I think the next slide's even better. Um, so there you go, you can see where he's headed, his second, his second missionary journey, and so towards the end of it really, or towards the Athens side of it. So he's made his journey down to Athens, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind, they would catch up soon, and he was a tourist really, he was alone in glorious Athens, the Athens of Socrates, the Athens of um, Plato, of Aristotle, of, um, of Epicurus, those philosophers Athens was the intellectual centre of the world. Scholars from all over made, their, made Athens their adopted home. What Paul saw as he walked the streets as a tourist in Athens, though, distressed him greatly. So come with me to verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's uh, Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, there's a, a writer, a geographer, a bit of a, a satirist as well, um, in the first century, end of the first century, a guy called uh, Pausonius. Anyway, he wrote that it was easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. So that's the picture you've got, right? These gods and statues everywhere. Uh, now, how, so how would Paul react? Uh, what should be the reaction of a Christian who visits or lives in a city which is dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion. A city which may be beautifully aesthetically to look at, culturally sophisticated, but morally depraved and pushing God aside and spiritually dead. Now, greatly distressed doesn't quite cut it. Uh, doesn't quite cut Paul's reaction. Paul like God himself, when he reacted to idolatry, Paul was angry and he was angry about a lie because idolatry is a lie. It's a lie, that's what it is. Every idol demonstrated, you see, the, the Athenians' hunger for God but it also demonstrated their spiritual emptiness. They did not know the true and living God. They, they knew lies. They were lost. And Paul was also jealous for the glory of Jesus Christ. God had promoted him to the supreme place of honour, the right hand of God, so that every knee and tongue would acknowledge him as Lord. Idols do the opposite. 
That's what idols do. Paul was desperately concerned for the spiritual need he saw. He was greatly distressed. It, it, it may have been very beautiful. It still is. Athens, amazing city. But beauty did not impress Paul if it did not honour God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul couldn't be indifferent. He couldn't be detached. He couldn't just turn his back to this from what he saw. And so what does he do? Well, he jumps straight in, doesn't he? Uh, Raging heart and all. Have a look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul began speaking. I do love this. He began speaking with anyone who would listen, pretty much. He went to the public places and he went and he talked about Jesus. He talked about Jesus, Lord, and the resurrection. He went to the marketplace. He spoke to Jews in the synagogue, to to God-fearing Greeks. Anyone who'd be up for it, he did not shrink back. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers... Uh, they were the, I guess you'd probably call them the main philosophies of the day. Uh, their thinking wouldn't be out of place today. Let me explain. So sounding very much like the atheists of today, so think Richard Dawkins and the like, the Epicureans believed that everything happens by chance, right? Just by chance. And the, the, uh, one writer said, described it as the random discourse of atoms. That's, that's the Epicureans. That's how they describe life in many ways. And death is the end. There's nothing after death. There's no afterlife. There's no judgment, anything like that. They did believe, the Epicureans, they did believe there are many gods, uh, but those gods have nothing to do with the world that we live in now, or they lived in. And pleasure, so seeking pleasure, that's the chief goal of the human life. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics, well, they're a little bit different, they were, they were what we call pantheists. In other words, everything's a god. So lots of gods. And that whatever happened to them was their destiny. So they're big on fatalism. So whatever happens, happens, that's, that's it. So they tended to live with, um, well, I just don't care. Uh, apathy. Uh, it just doesn't, doesn't bother me. Doesn't, I don't care. They detach themselves from reality. Uh, they do whatever they want. So how would they respond to the gospel that Paul preached? The gospel about Jesus being Lord, the gospel about Jesus and his resurrection and our resurrection as Christians. Well, look at verse 18. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the word translated babbler, I think is interesting. I hope you do too because I'm going to explain it. Um, (laughs) Literally, it means, nip, uh, sorry, it means seed picker. So it, it was originally used to describe birds uh, picking up seeds and grain, right, going around picking up seeds and grain. But over the years, the word sort of changed and became to mean people who stole, uh, picked, stole someone else's ideas and used them without really understanding them. So you can see how it comes from the original meaning of the word. They walk around and steal other people's ideas as they, as they seed pick, right? Uh, plagiarism is one way to describe it, I suppose. It was really the in word. It's the in word to throw at someone, throw at your opponent in an argument at the time. If you really wanted to put them down, you called them a babbler, a seed picker. I'm not quite sure what the equivalent is today. I racked my brains, I couldn't find something. I don't know. But that, that's the in word at the time. You're a babbler, you're a whatever, a seed picker. 
Come with me to verse 21. Let's see what, how Luke gives his evaluation of these philosophers. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Hang on. Who were the real babblers? They were. Not Paul. He wasn't, a, he wasn't one of them. They were. If you were into this scene in Athens, you love the sensational, right? You love the latest idea, the latest trends and so on. And so in verse 19, go back a couple of verses, Paul is taken to the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? May we know this latest idea? You can almost hear Paul say, shakes his head and say, man, the gospel is so much more than the latest trend and the latest idea. The gospel is about the true and living God, the living Lord Jesus. Don't put me in that category of the latest idea. Uh, the Areopagus was on a hill, uh, a bit up, sort of up the hill towards the Acropolis. If you're thinking ancient Greece in your head. Um, it oversaw, this group oversaw where it met on this hill, oversaw the, the religious and civic affairs of the city. That's where Paul was invited to speak. He wasn't taken, he was invited to speak there and he did. Uh, Paul would have been surrounding the Areopagus with all the gods of Greece. So again, use your imagination if you can. All the statues, overwhelmed. You know, the Areopagus left the main street of Greece, main street of Athens for dead in terms of number of idols. They were all there looking on. And of course, Paul would have had the, the, in, his, in his view the, the Acropolis and the Parthenon, buildings that are still standing today in Athens. Just amazing. But what a scene he was taken to. What a scene he was taken to to preach the gospel of the living God, the living Lord Jesus. So Paul responds. How does Paul answer the question of is God really there? And does it make a difference at all? Well, in this context, let's see what he says. So it's point two of our outline as well and verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's approach, I think, is brilliant, I reckon. And he's not rude. He's, uh, and he doesn't use sarcasm or ridicule or sort of personal put-downs, he doesn't do that. He finds compliments and he's keen to keep the peace. Paul's a good example, I think, for Christians today as we are challenged by uh, different worldviews, different opinions, different arguments. He's a good example. But Paul, no doubt, was eager. I'm sure he was. He was eager to speak against their idolatry and point them to the truth. But I think he restrains himself. He does. And he gave a genuine, genuine compliment at first. He says, I see that in every way you are very religious. I imagine they would have went, oh, well, thank you very much. That's wonderful. Thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. Uh, <laughs> he met them where they were. You see that? He found something positive, some common ground. But we'll see in a moment, he never compromises. Found common ground, doesn't compromise. In my stroll around your famous city as a, as a tourist, I found an altar to an unknown God. Now, let me tell you about that God that you are worshipping. 
Paul nails the issue, doesn't he? They, they worshipped an unknown God. They were without knowledge. But the Athenians, they were meant to know everything, right? And they did. Well, sort of, almost. But the most important truth, they came, on the most important truth, they came up short. They did not know God. They did not know the God who is there. So Paul, having, I guess, established a way in, he now gives them doses of spiritual truth. First about God and then about themselves, about us. First, God is the creator of the universe and the giver of life. God is the creator of the universe and the giver of life. Verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You notice there's no chance here. It doesn't come down to chance. It's quite the opposite of Dawkins' uh, famous description of the universe as blind, pitiless indifference, to quote Richard Dawkins. God is the personal creator of everything and the personal Lord of everything he's made. Paul says it's, it's just ridiculous to think that the God who made everything is restricted to living in things made by human hands. That's just a silly joke. <laughs> and in verse 25, he is the one who sustains life. He does not need to be sustained by us. God is not absent he is actively here and he is not contained by creation or anything we have made. Paul says any attempt to tame or domesticate God, to reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent on us for food and shelter is a ridiculous reversal of roles. See, as much as my lovely cat Neo thinks we are depending on him for food, we are not, no matter how many dead animals he drops at our back door, mostly rabbits, thankfully, uh, thinking he is providing for us. <laughs> it is a ridiculous thought to think that we depend on Neo for food. And it's pretty gross too, when you find it about a week later underneath your back window. We depend on God. He does not depend on us. So second, he's not only the creator and giver of life, but he seeks us out. Look at verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Let's just pause for a minute there. Hold on. That, because this hope is unfulfilled. That hasn't happened. Why? Because of human sin as the rest of the Bible makes clear. Sin alienates us from God. It separates us from God. It is a great chasm. God over there, us over there, and a great chasm in between. We cannot, we cannot bridge that. And it would be wrong to blame God for this alienation, this, this chasm, to regard him as distant, unknowable, or uninterested. It would be wrong to do that. 
Why? Let's keep reading at the end of verse 26, uh, 27. For he is not far away from any of us. It is we who are far away from him. <laughs> God is not lost. We are. But it is he who has taken the first step towards us. He has created order so that we can reach out and find the one who orders everything, Paul says. Verse 28, For in him we, have, we live and move and have our being. As some of, you, as some of your own poets have said, he quotes uh, poets of Athens, we are his offspring. We are God's offspring. We are made in his image, Genesis 1 tells us. He is not our offspring, made in our image. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. You see, all idolatry, uh, whether it's ancient or modern, simple or sophisticated, is without excuse, the Bible says. Whether the images are real or in our heads, material objects or just fantasies, nice things, comfort, wealth, sex, anything that we place above God and the things of God they're idols. Anything that distracts us away from our worship, our putting God number one in our life, that's what worship really means, anything that distracts us from that, well, that is an idol. Idolatry, you see, reverses the positions of God and us so that instead of us humbly acknowledging that God has created us and rules us, well, we think we can create and rule God. That's what idolatry does. Idolatry is all the wrong way around. It's where we minimise God and, and maximise ourselves. Now this all leads to Paul's last point. Uh, I'll just call it his plea. Verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance. In other words, God did not judge people for their idolatry as severely as they deserved when they committed it in the past. But now, reading on, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What is repentance? What does Paul call for here? What does God call for here with the people of, of Athens? Now we actually see it in action in 1 Thessalonians that where Paul had just been, actually where he had been forced out too. They, they, Paul wrote of their repentance in 1 Thessalonians a little while later. Uh, telling how they turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. What is, what is repentance? It's, it's turning away, isn't it? It's turning away from our idols to serve the true and living God. It's explaining to some friends of the night. It's, it's, it's chucking a yui. <laughs> it's chucking a yui for Jesus. It's turning away. You go in that direction, the wrong direction, and, it's face, and going back the right direction. That's what repentance is. It's Jesus that bridges that great chasm, isn't it? That's the gospel. It's Jesus that bridges that big, that, that, that gap, that alienation between us and God by his death on the cross. His death being a bridge so that sin can no longer be the cause of separation. Because by the cross our sin is forgiven. By turning to Jesus in repentance, we are rescued from the coming wrath of God. By turning to Jesus, we can know God, the real and true and living God. 
It's Jesus who has reached out for us perfectly in his son and so that we can know him, so that we can know the true and living God, so that we can know that God is real. Well, there's a bit of a mixed response with our Arapagus, isn't there? Look at verses 32 to 34. You can sort of skim over that if you like. Um, but some sneered. <laughs> they, they reacted angrily against Paul. Uh, not uncommon if we read, as we're reading through Acts. Uh, some wanted to know more. Uh, others believed. I wonder if you fit in one of those categories this morning. Uh, sneering, rejecting in other words. But wanting to know more, maybe believing. I hope it's the latter. Our question today, of course, is, and it's the question that Paul asked the people of Athens, is how will you respond? How will you respond to the God who is really there? The God that you can know, the God that is personal, the God that loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you, and the God who is also judge, as we read in Matthew 25. How will you respond to your idols Will you keep chasing after them or will you chuck a yui <laughs> and follow Jesus instead? The, the, the true and living God who is eternal, not temporary like our idols that waste away. I'm going to pray for us, folks, and then um, we'll see if there's any questions or comments, words of encouragement. Uh, you can see in your outline too that I did put the, uh, I was going to give you three reasons for the, why the existence of God makes a difference. Um, happy to do that at some other point, but we'll sort of run out of time today, but we'll leave it there. Um, let's pray. Father, we should just think, and we just think, sit quietly for a moment. We might think about the, the things that are idols in our life the things that we need to turn away from and serve so that we can serve the true and living God. Lord, we thank you that you have indeed reached out for us and, and sought us in your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you'd prepare us for that day that when Jesus will return and he will judge us on our relationship with you. So, Lord, we pray that we trust in you today. We pray that we turn from idols, the things that don't last, that waste away. And we, try, we, we, we turn to the true and living God. That is you, Lord Jesus. And Father, we put, we put our trust in you.